Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's July 19th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Chris Deaton and Andrew Egger of The Weekly Standard. Well, we were just talking before we started this. Uh, what, what, what's, what's happening this morning? I, I, I see that the president is lashing out at the EU for its fine against Google. Uh, m- more reports about the fallout from the the trade war that we are having, but let's where do where do we start today with uh, again we're we're still living in the week of Helsinki. I see a new poll out suggesting that an overwhelming majority, somewhat under 80%, but still pretty robust majority of Republicans, think the president did just fine in Helsinki, that his press conference with Vladimir Putin was, I don't know, completely okay with them, which would suggest that all of the speculation about uh, Republican conservative backlash uh, has been overblown. That whole thing is going to play out the way almost every other one of these scenarios has played out. So your, your thought about why 70 plus percent of Republicans looked at what we all saw happening in Helsinki and what a lot of Repu- even Republican Trump supporters had uh, had seen in Helsinki and said that that was a disaster. But apparently the Republican base is just sticking with Donald Trump. Well, and it, it sort of just depends on you know who you trust and where where you go for sources of information. And yes, there were there were more Republicans than usual uh, who who were willing to offer at least uh, you know partial criticism of of Trump and, and especially the things that Trump said. A lot of them didn't sort of rise to actually critiquing you know the president himself or his judgment or any of those things. Um, but but that doesn't necessarily matter if you're if you're uh, you know if you're a Republican voter if you um, don't pay a ton of attention to the day-to-day of politics or if you uh, have have you know just sort of developed by now sort of a, a reflexive uh, flinching away from uh, sources that criticize Trump it it doesn't matter that some Republicans uh, were in the Trump critical boat on on Monday it, it only matters that you know enough remained uh, that that people who wanted to to get a diet of here's exactly how Trump did really well in Helsinki uh, were able to do that you know if they just you know they they might not have been able to listen to Glenn Beck on Monday but maybe they just hopped on over to Sean Hannity, who was as gung ho and fiery as ever in support of the president's rhetoric, and uh, and yeah, I think that you're right that, that this is just going to be another thing that seems really outrageous uh, in the moment, and then uh, two weeks from now, we 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 have a hard time dredging up any emotions about it at all because we're we're whipped along onto the next thing. Yeah, in a couple of weeks from now, we'll be doing a podcast, and I will say something like, "Hey, does anybody remember what happened in Helsinki?" <laughs> oh yeah, well I'll have happened. a we'll have a nostalgic little laugh, yeah. This is yes, exactly. This is the the Trump Groundhog Day, and I, I, I have to admit, I, I I kind of roll my eyes every time I I turn on certain cable stations, of which I'm on one of them, where they go, okay, well, this is the one, right? This is the straw that broke the camel's back, and I'm always thinking, okay, how many times do we have to go through this? How many switching the metaphor? How many times does Lucy have to pull the football away <laughs> before we realize that no, this is not the straw? Access Hollywood was not the straw. Charlottesville was not the straw. Fill in the blank. This is not the straw. Chris, you have a piece up on the, the Weekly Standard uh, website today. The president speaks for himself. Talk about that, because this is, again, one of those moments where the disconnect between the president and his own administration is really dramatically on display again, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a disconnect between the president and, and some of his aides. It's also a disconnect between the president and the political establishment as a whole. And I think that that that's something that we have to pay attention to. I appreciate the 
political usefulness of anti-establishment rhetoric. It's wonderful to whip out during political campaigns, and a lot of it is true. I don't think anybody left or right would argue that the government functions well. No. Uh, certainly there is need to shake certain things up, but that's a circumstantial thing, which means, Charlie, you can't always just pull the I'm going to go it alone because everybody else is an idiot card on every issue and it be right. Sometimes there is expertise and institutional knowledge that you have to rely on, especially in matters of diplomacy when Donald Trump isn't exactly steeped in that line of work. So what I go back to, Charlie, is about a year ago when Rex Tillerson made that comment to Chris Wallace after Charlottesville saying that the president's comments, well, look, the president speaks for himself. He does not speak for the American government. Around that same time, that was when Congress passed its Russia and other Iran and other sanctions bill. But there was a provision inside of this sanctions bill that essentially gave Congress congressional review if the president decided to tinker with any of the sanctions that were included in that package or any of the support that we had given to Ukraine back in 2014. 517 to 522 voting members of Congress said that, yeah, we definitely need to have that provision in there because we can't trust the president. Surely that's 99% of Congress. And sometimes it maybe take a hint, I think, is probably the best advice here. Maybe it is best to lean on some of your advisors here and not go in alone and say, ah, can't we all just get along and all of these other losers want to have war with Russia? Because you look at what's happened in the last 12 months with tariffs and with going too far on Kim Jong-un making premature declarations about the success of that and not exercising any prudence, what happened in Helsinki, it's a repeat pattern. It is a repeat pattern. You know, speaking of going alone, um, we're still trying to, I think, get our heads around the decision by the president to meet alone with Vladimir Putin. No aides in the room, nobody taking notes other than the, uh, the, 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 the translators. And one of the things, I'm going to sort of back into this, one, one of the, the things that I think Donald Trump always has had going for him is he's really been lucky with his critics and his opponents, because, of course, now there is all of this talk about uh, subpoenaing the the translator, getting the translator in uh, to testify about what was said between the president and, um, and Vladimir Putin, which, of course, is never going to happen, is not reasonable. I mean, clearly, if there is such a thing as executive privilege, this would be covered under executive privilege. Um, I mean, that, that's but but again, I'm not sure what the word is, the, 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 the best word to describe the president's choice to go it alone on something this high profile, this high stakes whether it's reckless or whether it's just it's just dumb. But we're right now in a position where we have no idea what the president said, what he agreed to, or what the Russians uh, thought he agreed to, or what the Russians will claim that he agreed to. Well, I think that's largely by design, Charlie, because sure. what, what have we what have we seen, you know, over and over and over again in these kind of negotiations, especially this week, is you know when when uh, President Trump faces all of this fallout from from the really mealy mouthed remarks he made in public at the press conference. Um, all of his boosters and 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 fans are are able to just say, well, you know, that's just him, you know, not wanting to rub Putin's nose in it in in public, you know, in front of the whole world, not wanting to embarrass him. But but we're 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 totally sure that behind closed doors he was much harder nosed. He was, you know, he, he really laid down the law. And then what do you see from from Trump over the last couple of days? Is 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 him finally coming around and saying, well, yeah, I mean that's absolutely what I did. I, I definitely told Putin that that if he if he meddled again there would be consequences. Which is you know which is what all of his boosters have have been saying. That's 
you know that that's likely what happened for this this whole time. So it, at least as a as a domestic political strategy, it it makes a lot of sense as an out for him coming out of these things. Well, I yeah, I, I do understand that strategy. The the problem is, of course, that the the Russians are in fact playing the fourth fourth dimensional chess with all of this. And so when when they say, well, we agreed on X, Y, or Z, um, they can create a really a complicated dynamic here uh, for. For the, for the president, you know, there's another story that's circulating out there that um, I, I don't I don't think is well. It's getting more attention right now. It was this uh, apparent, well, not apparent. It was actually the the bizarre comment uh, that uh, Sarah Sanders even confirmed yesterday that the president thinks it's an interesting idea to let the Russians interrogate the former ambassador to the so to to the Russian Federation with the United States, Michael McFaul. And uh, Bill Browder, uh, two very you know sharp, harsh critics of, of Vladimir Putin, and this is one of those moments where you step back and you go, "Are you really kidding? That you have the president of the United States suggesting that yeah, yeah, you know the the American ambassador to Russia should be subject to some sort of an investigation or interrogation by Vladimir Putin's regime?" Yeah, it's it's really eye popping, and and this is this is likely you know to to be honest, one of those things that that is never going to get past the stage of Trump being like, oh, yeah, that seems like it might be a good idea. You know, that he will be told by his advisors that this is an absolute non-starter. And I, I, I imagine he'll find that convincing. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem, you know, very powerful and strong leader-esque uh, to allow, you know, other leaders to push you around and extradite your your citizens and things like that. Um, not to mention just the political ramifications. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, one thing that we've talked a lot about in the wake of this summit is the problem of moral equivalence and the way that mm-hmm. the way that Putin uh, in in all of his public interviews says, yeah, Russia's not so bad. The U.S. does all these bad things, too. And, and Trump has has really allowed that to slide. And Trump, in fact, you know, uses the same things. You know, anytime he's asked uh, to make an assessment of Putin's character, he's like, well, you know, ha- has the U.S. been been all that great on all these things? And, and when you when you point that out, oftentimes, you know, Trump's fans act like that's not important or that that's just sort of like moral posturing or political grandstanding to talk about the problem of that moral equivalence. But this is the kind of issue where it really becomes important in a concrete way, where it's where, where if the U.S. president doesn't see why his government's treatment of you know potential criminal suspects is different from the Russian mob's treatment of potential criminal suspects, then yeah, I mean, he can be like, oh yeah, that actually, that's really intriguing, really an, an interesting idea that that we would each interrogate interrogate each other's guys on this issue so it's it was really staggering to see that and I think it's I don't think it's going anywhere but but it's it's definitely a vulnerability in Trump's personality that that is you know a big deal in issues like this yeah but you know I, I think people have pointed this out like a year ago I think it was uh, uh, somebody in the Washington Post you know false moral equivalency isn't a bug of Trumpism it, it really is a feature and of course I, I remember when this sort of whataboutism and moral equivalency was kind of a staple of the new left on the left. And one of the, the defining uh, elements of conservatism, not just neoconservatism, but I mean conservatism as long as I can remember, was pushing back and rejecting this idea of moral equivalency. So a, it, when conservatives embrace moral relativism and moral equivalency, you, you actually have moved the bar. There's, there's no question. I was actually trying to remember – the famous William F. Buckley quote about moral equivalency. Do you remember this when he was talking about the people who say, well, we do the same things as the Soviet Union? And he said, you know, um, the the man that that pushes an old lady out of a bus to save her, you know, out of the, the path of a bus to save her life 
you know, um, is not the moral equivalent of the person that pushes the old lady into right. the path of the bus. Right. Even though they, they both pushed old ladies, but there's a complete moral difference. And I, and I think that that's something that we uh, we need to learn. You know, the other when I was also thinking about the how lucky Trump is with some of his critics this this week, um, I you know, a couple of times, and I've, I've, I've been as critical of Trump's performance in Helsinki as I think I, I is, is pretty much anyone else. I think it was a betrayal of his uh, of his office, of his country. It was, uh, it was it was was shameful. It was obsequious. It was servile. I mean, but the there's a demand on the part of some of the folks in the resistance that if you do not uh, describe it as treason, that somehow you are pro-Trump. They demand that that it is not just it's not just a betrayal. It is not just stupidity. It's not just weakness. You must call the president of the United States a traitor, and that the that press conference was an overt act of treason. I think Kevin Williamson made the point: people, words actually matter, and if you go too far, you weaken your entire credibility. And in 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 a lot of ways, the way that the the left weakened the power of the word racism by throwing it out so promiscuously. But it is interesting how how hysterical some folks on the left have become that they go with is it DEFCON five? What's the highest? DEFCON five or DEFCON one? I think it's five. Okay, let's just I was gonna suggest know, one. Okay? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I mean they go they go they go okay, whatever. It's leave a comment fun. below. That's right. It's nuclear war no matter no matter what. Uh, no no question about it. Um yeah, I will. Will Congress do anything about this? I'm, I'm guessing that with this new poll out this morning showing uh, Republican voters okay with this, that uh, any any prospect of any sort of concrete action becomes uh, minimal. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that our our editorial in the Weekly Standard we published a couple of days yeah. ago was with respect to congressional censure. That was certainly an interesting idea. Um, I. I'm not sure that a lot of congressional Republicans would go for that just because of its direct nature. Um, I'm not sure if there's a way to split the difference here and do something like a sense of the Senate resolution. Um, Lindsey Graham and Chris Coons actually had a bipartisan such resolution a few weeks ago in advance of the Helsinki summits calling on the president to just, you know, okay, yes, we accept the intelligence community's assessment and all of this stuff, nothing that you've never heard before and very, um, very much a matter of form and nothing groundbreaking there, but just to at least get it on paper and have the Senate say something. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the things that what Chuck Schumer called for in the wake of Helsinki with respect to ramping up uh, sanctions on Russia potentially and continuing to exercise oversight of the administration, there are a lot of Republicans who were down for this stuff. Um, there are certain things that Republicans have done already along with Democrats. I mean, I go back to the Russian set, Russia sanctions package last year. I mean, that that is law. And I do agree with the takeaway from our editorial that rhetoric does matter. Words do matter, especially in these times, Charlie. Posturing matters so stinking much. And it's kind of a shame because people lose memory of what was said 24 hours after it was said. So sometimes you have to remind people of where you stand over and over and over again. So I don't think it would be bad for lawmakers to do something more formal along those lines. But to your point, I'm not sure what ends up being acceptable to the entire political system, the left included. Everybody can get together, um, especially to the left, beyond using these exaggerated hyperbolic words to describe something that happened, describing what it is precisely is enough. 
And no, if, if I could just add I, one thing to that, right. Charlie, um, just that, yeah, I mean, I think we, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, Republicans are likely to sort of roll over on this issue and, and talk more than they actually act. But I do think that it's it's important that we saw this kind of pushback uh, from Republicans in, in Congress specifically that that kind of, you know, at least curbed Trump around our way of thinking um, because, you know, and, and now he's, he's you know, re, re-increasing his rhetoric in terms of his toughness on Russia. And the reason why I think that's important is because you know this this issue of election meddling um, and 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 what the role that Putin had in that was that's an important issue right but it's not it's not important primarily because um, you know the, the the act of meddling was so catastrophic or so con- consequential but just because it shows sort of the uh, you know the 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 ruthlessness and the the, the degree to which uh, Putin doesn't mind uh, trampling on on norms and provoking us and you know it shows that he is an adversary of ours and so and but 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 in terms of what matters to Putin, you know, this issue of election meddling really is just kind of like an irritating distraction as far as he's concerned. What he really cares about is, you know, the the, the broader further back policies of isolation uh, from the West and, you know, like economic sanctions and things like that. I mean, those are the irritants to him. Those are the things that he hopes to see Trump uh, move toward lifting. Um, And the fact that Congress, you know, reacted so strongly against Trump's rhetoric, I think will show Putin that, that they at least are still watching uh, these kind of actions from Russia, they and and they're the ones who control those kinds of things. So I think that that they did provide, uh, you know, even if they don't pass anything new, um, just just by reacting and showing that they're not not champing at the bit to remove those sanctions and and and, and you know usher Russia back into uh, the the international fold. I think that that, if nothing else, may provide a, a, a sort of check on on Putin going forward. Yeah, I I want to talk about uh, Andrew. I want to talk about your piece about uh, what's happening with the Democrats. How uh, you know Alexandria uh, Ocasio Cortez uh, ought to be a, a cautionary lesson to the Democratic establishment. We're going to get to that in just a moment. The Daily uh, Standard podcast is brought to you today by RX Bar. RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients. Uh, where every ingredient serves a purpose. This is actually one of my favorite products that we talk about because I, and I mentioned when I travel, I always take them along. I mean, they label all of the core ingredients, egg whites, dates, and and nuts. They don't have any added sugar, artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. I mean, it's basically like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds. They're, they're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, so you don't even have to feel guilty, which is a kind of a plus. And plus, they they actually taste pretty good. Uh, uh, They have three new uh, flavors, mango, pineapple, peanut butter and berries, chocolate, hazelnut. Uh, They also offer the RX Nut Butter, made with the same core ingredients as RX Bar Protein Bars. Um, And, you know, again, if you want... uh, If you want breakfast on the go, snack at the office, throw your bag for the plane, uh, they're, you know, they are, I'm always glad that I have a, I have a stack with me. And we have a special offer for listeners of the Daily Standard podcast for 25% off your first order and free shipping. That's free. Visit rxbar.com slash standard or enter promo code standard at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash standard or enter promo code standard at checkout. Okay, so we've been talking about the problems that Republicans are having. Andrew, you have a very interesting piece about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was really, you know, for several weeks now, really the heartthrob of the Democratic Socialist left. I mean, you know, attractive, uh, uh, you know, young woman who 
defeats an establishment uh, Democrat. What, what's going on? I mean, this, this, this was probably one of the most shocking primary upsets of, of the year when she knocked off Joe Crowley, who a lot of people thought might be the next speaker of the House of Representatives. But um, she's having kind of a rocky few days, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, d- definitely. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It was probably probably the biggest primary upset since, you know, Dave Bratt uh, a couple of years back yep. knocking off Eric Cantor. Um, but but yes, uh, I, I, I think you're you're right. It's it's interesting because she, you know, it's her first foray into politics. Uh, she's she's been an activist for a long time. Um, and, and so is sort of accustomed to the sort of no holds barred type rhetoric of activism, sort of like shoot first, ask questions later and all these issues. And so now she's she's uh, she's been getting tripped up a, a little bit here and there as she's trying to, um, you know, navigate the, the transition to, to more of like a political mode of speech. Right. Um, and so the and, and, and also it, it doesn't really help that she's 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 staking down these really broad stances um, coming from a place where she actually doesn't have an incredible breadth of policy knowledge on a lot of these different issues. So, so Israel and Palestine was yeah. uh, the, the big one over the past weekend where she got some bad press because, first of all, she was, she was sort of asked to defend her, her rhetoric about Isra- Israeli occupation of Palestine um, and, and sort of fumbled for, over her words and now has been a little more cagey on the issue and is saying, you know, like, well, I, I definitely support the, the right of the Israeli state to exist and I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, talk to a lot of activists now and, and sort of figure out what's going on more broadly. And I think that, you know, uh, some of that's overblown. You know, I mean, like she's she's a congressional candidate uh, and you, you want her to have, you know, policy knowledge on these things. But at the same time, you, you can't fault her for, you know, just being getting up to speed. She wasn't supposed to win this this primary. And, and the, the issues that she ran on in the primary um, were, were a lot of times not these, you know, big, uh, heady international issues. They were they were issues that were local and specific to her district and that that she was hitting Crowley on uh, Joe Crowley, her, her opponent, on not sufficiently attending to these issues. And, you know, she had a lot of cash it there because as an activist in in uh, her district for a long time, you know, she was she was intimately connected to a lot of these issues. Um, but but at the same time, we're, we're now seeing more and more the sort of establishment wing of the Democratic Party really kind of, you know, uh, harumphing about about these sort of, you know, uh, bad, bad press moments and being like, well, Joe Crowley never would have, you know, gotten tripped up like that. And it just it just goes to show that we you know we should have had him and you know you still should go out and Joe former Senator Joe Lieberman wrote a wrote an op-ed in the in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this week saying uh, you guys should still go out and vote for Joe Crowley because he is still gonna gonna be on the ballot due to this weird quirk of elections um, but but I think that what what that is that kind of that kind of mode of rhetoric from from Lieberman and guys like Lieberman um, is, is is really just sort of a failure to engage with the fact of uh, Ocasio Cortez's victory. You know, he kind of hand waves it as just a handful of primary voters are gonna gonna shape the way this district goes. Well, that's how primaries work. You know, she won a commanding victory, a double digit victory over over Crowley, and and there's a reason for that, and the reason is because Crowley uh, didn't try to run on issues that his constituents cared about. It, you know, at least cared about primarily. He was he was he, cl- a classic guy who was out of touch with his district, he, right? Exactly. I mean, as you point out he sent his kids to school in D.C., not the own district, right? I mean, he had he had conflicts of uh, of, of interest. So, um, it, it it's 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 not that, that as you point out, it it wasn't because the Bronx is a hotbed of communist activity. That's not that's not what won her the primary. 
Right, right. And I mean, those she she certainly represented a stark policy difference from Crowley. You know, she she's fully on board with this Medicare for all stuff with uh, this abolish ICE stuff. I mean, it's not that she's not, you know, an out and out democratic socialist. But the reason why those things resonated with the voters she was taking the message to is because they bought her as a person who actually cared about the district. And I think that that is what, you know, and th- this isn't just a democratic issue. This, you know, we, we can all take something out of this that, yes, we are always preoccupied occupied with these big national matters. Um, you know, like that, that was what Crowley uh, built his whole campaign on. He was always trying to pivot to fighting Trump, fighting Trump, fighting Trump, fighting Trump. Um, but, you know, her, ultimately, the voters in that district, they wanted to fight Trump, so they, they're not going to elect a Republican come November. But they, they thought, okay, well, this other person's also going to fight Trump, and she seems to care about the specific local issues that matter to us. And I think that's a that's a healthy thing, and I think that that's something that we, you know, as, as sort of political commentators and, and people in politics need to understand is important to to voters and and the more we, we we keep our eyes trained on that i feel like the the better off we all are in the long run you know i an, an, another local issue and and I'm, I'm not sure how this is actually playing out in in the midterm elections because and we have talked about this a little bit the uh, the the, the politics of of tariffs. I'm actually trying to look at this uh, here in uh, in my home state of Wisconsin. There's the uh, the Marquette University law poll that uh, is is closely watched here because, with the exception of the 2016 general election, they've generally nailed things. And they had some numbers yesterday um, about how the Trump tariffs are playing, and they are deeply underwater um, here in, in 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 Wisconsin, which is an indication that people are are sort of figuring out now. That um, that these that these uh, these these tariffs are going to be hitting, uh, you know, the, the farm, uh, you know, farm communities, the agriculture communities in, in a pretty big way. Are, are either of you picking up any of this uh, anxiety among Republicans that not only I mean, it's one thing to say that the tariffs are, are, are bad economic policy or violations of the uh, principles of free trade but that they actually might have an effect on voters. I'm a little skeptical whether or not that translates into votes, but I was really struck by how deeply underwater those tariffs were in a state like Wisconsin. Yeah, Andrew, you've covered this issue quite a bit. Why don't you chime in first, and I'll hop in second. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I actually might push back against that a little bit, Charlie. I think that that we, we we've grown really accustomed to this pattern of you know Trump does a thing and there's a furor over it, and then Trump does another thing, and we move on from that last thing to that new thing, and that just right. cycles cycles constantly. Um, but a lot of those things are are issues of optics or issues of presentation, right? I mean, they're they're you know Trump saying that uh, neo Nazis are very fine people, or Trump saying that. Mm-hmm. You know, Vladimir Putin is a really strong, capable leader. Like, they're things that make us mad, but they're not things that that continue to affect us once they're out of our minds, right? Uh, whereas the the this tariff thing is is completely different on that on that front. You know, it's it's not uh, a, a huge sound bite. It's not a thing that like is constantly in our minds and and you know we're we're obsessing about it. Uh, but it's a thing that you know while while we move on to the next issue, while we while we you know carry on to the next outrage, it continues to exist under the surface and continues to affect people, you know, real people and where it, in, in in circumstances that really matter to them, which is, you know, like whether their business can continue to succeed. Um, and, and, and for for people like, you know, farmers in the Midwest or, you know, manufacturers in the Midwest for whom this is really devastating, you know, they they can't even afford to move on to the next thing. You know, they're they're not hardly thinking about, you know, what what Trump said in, in Russia this week, even though tariffs haven't been in the news, the tariffs are in the news for them because they're they're seeing the impact on their day to day lives. And it's it's gonna be really catastrophic 
catastrophic on a lot of these industries. So I think this is a thing where where it's going to be the exception of the rule unless something changes quickly. Um, and I think that that you know once the Trump administration cottons onto this, and I think they will need to eventually. It's although it's a shock they haven't yet. Um, I think that we we may yet see some kind of change in policy just because it, it's going to be really really bad. I think that's a really, really good point. By the way, uh, yeah, I actually found the numbers here from this Market University Law Poll. Uh, This is Wisconsin, again, a a key state for Donald Trump. 24% think that increased tariffs on aluminum and steel will improve the U.S. economy. 55% they say they will hurt. And by the way, that's worse than the numbers back in June. So that's a pretty big margin in a state that, frankly, I'm I'm a little bit surprised by all this, but of course, the other um, dramatic um, result from the poll is how is how sharp the partisan differences are. Forty four percent of Republicans uh, say that tariffs are good for the economy. Only seven percent of Democrats. I mean, just think about that. <laughs> Only uh, Democrats have decided they hate tariffs, and Republicans, who five minutes ago were in favor of free trade. Um, are are now against, but only forty four percent of Republicans say that they are good for trade. Because I'm I'm guessing, and going to your point, that almost every single story that you now see about uh, the trade war emphasizes the damage that's being done. And even Senator Ron Johnson, who has been, uh, I think, uh, you know, rather supportive of uh, the Trump administration in a variety of areas, gave a speech yesterday where he said, you know, they're, they're the, the the damage that's being done, um, you know, is already you know significant and and long lasting, uh, and yet it's not clear to me that Republicans are prepared to actually do anything about that. And you mentioned when the when the administration finally figures out this is damaging, but this is one of Donald Trump's core beliefs. I mean, you go back into the 1980s. If there's one thing that motivates Donald Trump that he has been consistent about, that is the one firmly held principle, it is he loves tariffs. Right. If, if I could just say one one more thing on this, I'm not sure. trying not trying not to hog the mic here, but um, but I think that to your point about the polling, um, one thing that's really interesting if you talk to you know some of these people who are directly affected by these tariffs, um, you know Republican voters, farmers, uh, r- r- big Trump people, is they they think you know we we think that the that the, these tariffs are going to be good for the economy. We're pretty sure they're only bad for us, you know. And you, and you see that you see that across you know di- multiple different industries, you know. And and so I I think that there's there's even more of a of a lag time in that kind of polling, where if this drags on for for months and months, eventually people have to start looking around and being like, "Wait, this is bad for you too. This is bad for you too. Who 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 are these tariffs helping?" And the, and the answer, I mean, obviously we've known the answer all along, is that ultimately these tariffs help nobody. They don't boost the economy. There'll be you know a couple of steel and aluminum manufacturing companies uh, are dotted around the United States that will that will do slightly better because prices will go up. Um, but but we know that the economic uh, impact overall is negative and bad. And so I think that people will have to begin to realize this as the issue continues to be in the news. Yeah, and this is another one of those maybe, you know, good news hidden inside, you know, the, maybe this is the pony inside the the, the giant pile of manure, um, is that is, is that suddenly both the media and folks on most many folks on the left, not everybody on the left, suddenly are discovering the benefits of uh, free trade. I mean, just just like a lot of liberals are now discovering, wow, this thing about checks and balances, this is remarkable. Um, this uh, the Constitution constraining executive power. Tell me more about that. So at least it's a teachable moment. Um, anything else that we should know about today? This has been this has actually been a pretty crappy week. <laughs> There's no question about it. And yet it's only Thursday. 
and and we have, we have a, we have a Friday coming up. We know that the most horrific things tend to happen on a a a, a Friday. So anything that you're uh, particularly keeping your eye on over the next few days, either one of you. Well, I I think Charlie, just to add on really quickly to to that particular conversation, because I think that's that's worth parsing out a little bit with respect to just keeping an eye on for the future. We can talk about tribalism here really quickly because free trade used to be one of the issues that Democrats and Republicans had some widespread agreement upon. Now, all of a sudden, that that's turned into a Republican versus Democrat issue is ridiculous. There are apolitical things that are, that have you know taught us over time about tariffs and the way that free trade ought to work that kind of transcend what partisan politics are. We've decided that we rejected that. I think the president probably probably miscalculated um, with respect to how these tariffs were going to actually work, just given the fact that. He surrounded himself with people who were involved in raw materials, the steel council, aluminum, and then Whirlpool was championing some of the tariffs on washing machines just because it was direct effect in the industry. Tariffs are complicated. They might not have all that big of a net effect long term, but there's a miscalculation when you forget that a lot of American industries use these raw materials too, and when you say trade wars are easy to win, (laughs) They're not easy. They're complicated. So you don't know what the ripple effects are going to be. And I think that that was one of the big miscalculations that he made, because there are a lot of people who are feeling the effects of this that I don't think he factored in. And and one of the miscalculation, going back to your point about not going it alone and listening to experts, had he listened to virtually any credible economist, they would have explained this to him in great detail. And by the way, I'm, I would be fascinated to know what the what, what the conversations between Donald Trump and Larry Kudlow sound like these days. <laughs> and, and and one other thing on that is just that you know he 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 thinks these trade wars are easy to win. He thinks that he himself is is a very capable, incredible negotiator, and that might that might well be true. I mean, he he has done a lot of negotiating in his career. The pro- but the problem is, you know, he really likes these unilateral deals um, with you know he's trying to make unilateral deals with all of these countries that we previously had multilateral deals with, uh, and you it takes time. I mean, it takes an energy and effort and focus. Uh, and President Trump, you know, cannot be, you know, the point man on on making unilateral trade deals with fifty nations at once. Now that we've, you know, you can't rip up all the contracts and start from scratch. Where and have Trump, you know, go down the aisle because, you know, at the at the moment that you rip up those contracts, the, the previous deals, uh, the economy starts to take a hit. And and you know. As long as it takes to renegotiate all those new deals, uh, you know you 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 lose all that time. Even if you do end up, you know, coming up with with really good unilateral deals between you know, us and each individual nation, and and also during that time, all these nations are making new trade deals with one another that sort of cut us out of the picture. So it's it's real. I mean, the, the urgency of this it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like uh, you know an incredibly you know moment to moment issue. It get, gets driven down a lot by a lot of these you know more uh, bombastic. Uh, issues that come up from time to time but but it really is an urgent thing and i don't think that the administration seems to realize that yet well i'm, I'm willing to stipulate uh, that there was a time when donald trump uh successfully negotiated some new york real estate deals but i i have yet to see any evidence at all that he's able to transfer those alleged negotiating skills to the presidency either in domestic policy or on the international front i mean it is one thing to negotiate a deal it's another thing to simply have a summit and then declare victory when there is in fact no deal. Well, haven't you heard I'm, North I'm, Korea is giving up their nukes? Well, that would be a perfect example. <laughs> um, and Lord knows what we're going to find out was was said in Helsinki. Gentlemen, thanks uh, so much for joining me today. I appreciate it very, very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>